Welcome to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I am your host, Scott Bernstein, along with my partner in crime and co-conspirator, the doctor, Jimmy Gucciolato. Hey, hey now. now. <laughs> That's, uh, <Scott. laughs> That's my signature Howard Stern uh, shout out. Uh, so today I'm I'm super jacked for this episode. I don't know if I've been as jacked for an episode since maybe we first got started. This is a guy, a guest that we've wanted to have on since day one. And for whatever reason, it just it, it uh, the stars won't align. But uh, we're going to bring on Frank Calabrese Jr., the uh, prodigal son of the Chinatown mob crew in uh, in Chicago. He grew up uh, in the mob. His dad and his uncle were both very uh, high ranking members of the Chicago outfit. Both killers, guys that. Um, it played a very active role in everything that you saw in the movie Casino uh, from the 60s all the way into the 90s. And then Frank, who we're about to bring on in a second, and I'm going to just shut up and just turn the floor over to Frank. Frank is a true American hero, in my opinion. And, and I don't think you can say that a lot about people from that life. Um, but what Frank did was so uh, consequential, both for the the ripple effects in the sense that uh, Frank deciding to work with the FBI against his father and his, well, against his father, um, brought the biggest mafia prosecution in the history of the uh, Chicago FBI, uh, put to bed 18 unsolved murders, including the murders of the Spilato brothers that you saw depicted in the movie Casino. Um, but he, and he'll tell you this, he had no incentive to cooperate. He wasn't jammed up he wasn't looking at life in prison uh and he made a decision and he'll talk about it to you guys uh about where that decision came from that his father needed to be stopped his father could not uh be a free man anymore and let let to roam chicago as for all intents and purposes he was a john wayne gacy he was a serial killer he just was veiled in, in a, a mob skipper outfit so Frank, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sorry I had such a long preamble, but I'm so excited for you Thanks, to be here. Uh, and Frank, we'll tell you what, where you can where you can get more of Frank's story. Uh, he's about to start a residency in the Las Vegas Mob Museum. He's got a great book that will one day be on the uh, big screen as a movie or uh, you know on a streaming platform as a television uh, show. It's been in the works since the book came out. Uh, and just to give a small insight into my I made my bones as a reporter on his case, his dad's case. I was a young cub mob reporter in my late 20s in Chicago, in that courtroom every day, writing a book, writing uh, for a magazine. And then I've gotten to know Frank more recently. And we were in Las Vegas together uh, last week for a couple of days. And I got nothing but the most amazing things to say about this man. So thank you, Frank, for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Hollywood with that. You know, I've been working on this for almost 10 years now. And I got to tell you, Hollywood's a lot rougher. Yes. Than the streets. Yeah. It's up Hollywood. They pat you on the back and they yeah. tell you, don't worry about nothing. And next thing you know, everything's gone. The, so, the, yeah. But uh, so a little bit about myself to, to people that, that don't know me. And then I'll talk a little bit about my story. They know my story. It's really a family story. OK, um, I uh, was I say I was born into this. Because I'm half Irish, half Italian. I grew up in Chicago. My father's side was my Italian side, uh, last name Calabrese. It was Sicilian and Bades. And on my Irish side, my mother was Hanley. 
Uh, on my Irish side, my grandfather, Ed Sticks Hanley, used to fight against Al Capone. He ran with a crew called the O'Donnell Crew. Uh, he was involved in a historical shootout where Capone killed McSwiggin, the state attorney, state's attorney. My grandfather survived because when he seen the cars coming, he dived behind the wheel. Well, the two guys behind him weren't quick enough. Got shot, killed, fell on top of him. That's how my grandfather survived. Now, my uncle Ed Hanley on my Irish side, my mother's brother, started out in a local in Cicero with the hotel and restaurant employees union. Tony Accardo, seeing my uncle, the boss of the Chicago mob, seeing my uncle's, um, what he had in him. And, uh, and my uncle wound up rising to be the international president for over 30 years of over 350,000 members strong. Uh, that's just my Irish side. Now, my Italian side, my dad and my uncle, like Scott said, were both high-ranking members of the Chicago mob. A trait my dad had, which you don't see, is a lot of times guys are either racketeers or street guys. Street guys do heavy work. Racketeers make a lot of money. They coincide well together. Okay, my dad had a little bit of both. And um, and he was good at both. Uh, this life changed my dad, though. I wound up following my dad and my uncle into this life for over 30 years. Now, as a young kid growing up in Chicago, what was different from New York was you weren't supposed to bring your kids into this life. You were supposed to make a better life for your kids. So the neighborhood I grew up with, there was a lot of guys in the outfit, all their kids I knew. We, we didn't stand on the corner and want to be gangsters. I want to go to college. I wanted to be a lawyer. I played sports. That's what we did. God forbid we got in any trouble. We'd get our asses kicked by our old men. Um. As a young kid, my father started to teach me about the street. He said, son, I'm going to teach you about the street. You're going to learn street smarts from me. You go to school, learn book smarts. If you have them both, you're going to be very successful in life. So he started teaching me stuff. He gave me uh, little chores to do, uh, he testing. Um, and the more that I did for my dad, the better I was at it and the more he seen of him and me. Now, you got to understand, as a young kid, I can handle myself. But I didn't like fighting. I look like Opie Taylor, Ron Howard. Okay. I if I got in a fight in school, I, I, I was crying while I was beating the guy up because I wanted to be friends with him. I was so shy. I didn't even want to go to birthday parties. I didn't want anybody to look at me. So it wasn't like, oh my God, this guy is is, you know, it's like I'm gonna be a gangster. I'm a tough guy. I don't care. No, I can handle myself, but I didn't like violence. And it's still to this day. Um so going through grammar school, going through high school, my dad slowly brought this, brought us, me into this more and more. And I was like, hey, be a good son. Do this for your dad. You know, I was always I idolized my dad. I idolized my uncle Nick. And eventually when I got when I graduated from high school, my dad would not allow us to go away to college. He says, you can go to a local college. And he gets me a job with the city of Chicago Water and Sewer Department. I start working there, and then my dad starts bringing me into the mob more and more. But he never tells me, oh, what do you feel like doing when you get out of school? Do you want to join me? You know, here's a handbook. Here's, here's a list of what we do. It was just like, hey, do this for your dad. Be a good son. And it went further and further. It got to the point where I started buying into this. But I didn't buy into my dad. I did. I mean, I'm sorry. I didn't buy into the mob. I bought into my dad, and I bought into my uncle. I bought into family. I bought into loyalty. Now, Frank, all Frank, can I ask you a question real quick? Sure. Uh, just for the audience. Uh, so your your dad and your uncle both were Southside outfit guys, right? Uh, yes. 
Well, it's a little more complicated. See, we were from the west side, Grand and Harlem, Elmwood Park. Okay. But because my dad was brought into the mob by Angelo Lepetro, who was in Cicero, and then he ran Chinatown, we were with the Chinatown crew. So, but the 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 people that were directly over your dad and uncle were the La Pietra brothers, right? Uh, Hooks, yeah. uh, Hooks, yeah. and uh, uh, and Jimmy uh, Jimmy the Lapper. Yeah, correct. Okay, so those and then Johnny Apes and the Carusos. Those that those were the guys that that uh, you and your dad were around in the you know seventies and eighties, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, no, no, that's yeah, it's all part of the Chinatown crew. Yeah. Now, another thing with that, too, this was a very, very violent crew also because there were two crews that the mob would use when they wanted people dead, done right in a timely manner. The Wild Bunch, which was all brought out at the trial, okay, and the Chinatown crew, okay, and so a lot of the names that you mentioned. My dad learned a lot from the government, learned a lot from the military, you know, just by watching how they did things. So everything was strategically planned out with my dad and practice. There's no room for error. He says, you don't worry about about what you're doing. You don't worry about getting caught. You worry about getting this done and getting this done right, and you'll be ready for it. So, yeah, he was very regimented like that. Now, you know, my dad's constantly testing me, you know, and um, I got this job and I'm in my early 20s, and um, – my dad comes home from his night at work and I could see his, his adrenaline going. He goes, we got to talk. Wherever we talked, we went in the bathroom, we turned the vents on, we turned the water on. He steps in, he looks at me, he says, remember I told you there's rules in the neighborhood? Remember I told you no drugs? I go, yeah, dad. Because we had to kill two guys tonight because of that. And then he just proceeds to describe in detail how they killed him. Okay. They use a shotgun, they blew him apart. And he's watching my reaction as if I'm ready for this. My reaction to it was, hey, this is my dad. If he says this is the way it's got to be, this is the way it's got to be. You know, there's rules and you follow them. But the whole time I'm thinking, wow, I wonder what my friend's fathers were telling uh, their sons about their day of work. I bet it was not like this. So from that point on, I graduated. I graduated this. I was living two lives. My dad said, you are my secret weapon. Fast forwarding. Uh, going forward, you know, I started um, getting deeper and deeper with my dad. Now, when you're out on the street and you get into this life, you're always looking to make money. You're always looking to see what's the grind in the street. What can I do? What was the early 80s? One of the big mistakes I made in the early 80s, a lot of guys were starting to get into powder cocaine, selling it, partying once in a while. Big no-no to the mob. That sentence in Chicago, if you got caught. I partied once in a while with my friends on the weekend. It was only supposed to be habit forming. It was uh, a celebratory drug. But when I seen the money that could be made in it behind my father's back and anybody else knowing, I set up my own little crew and started selling powder cocaine. Problem was, like on Scarface, don't get high on your own supply. I did. It turned into a problem. When I went to prison in 97, I've been clean since. Most embarrassing thing I ever did in my life. Actually, there were a lot of guys that were doing the same thing I was doing, made guys, uh, guys like um, uh, uh, they don't bring you much out about Tony Spilatro and Michael Spilatro. I mean, they were huge in it. I was just talking to a guy the other day that was in hoagies all the time. You know, it was just it was around. And a lot of guys were asking a lot of questions because there was a lot of money. to be made. I have a, a question about that. Would, would you say that they said that there's a, a no drug policy? Would you say that 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 was disingenuous and maybe the policy was don't get caught 
dealing drugs more than don't do it. Because that, that's what De- that was what it was like in Detroit. I mean, yeah. Toko and Joe Z were guys that would espouse the the no narcotics rule, but just like Carlo Gambino or Angelo Bruno, they're taking envelopes knowing that these envelopes are coming from drugs. Well, from my experience, my dad and certain guys on up, no drugs. Mm-hmm. A lot of guys my age, other guys I talked about, exactly what you guys said. But, but they weren't on the wink, wink, oh. wink. They weren't on like, Frankie, thanks for the envelope. We know you did a good job loan sharking this week. But right. knowing that it's actually drug money, he, guys, just didn't, oh. he, didn't, he didn't want any drug money. No, no. Uh-uh. In fact, one of the guys on our crew, um, we found out he was all of a sudden he's giving out a lot of juice loan money, uh, 200, 300, 500 dollars, like a whole list of guys. We find out these guys are all heavily involved in drugs. He just he just told them all, don't even pay me the money back. Just stay away from me. That's that's it. So he just he figured it, it wasn't even worth it. You know, and he reported to my dad and told my dad. But, yeah, it, it was. um but there were changing times. Like I said, some guys were seeing the money in it. And again, it wasn't supposed to be like heroin or crack or all this other stuff. But still, we see what I think. Been. I think Chicago, would you t- would you say this is accurate? I think Chicago is a was a bit of an outlier in that not to say there wasn't drug activity with an LCN. There clearly was. But opposed to these other families that we're referencing, um, it seems like there was it, it was more than just lip service in Chicago. And, and that jives with my research, too. Um, yeah. There was not at the level that you saw it in other families, the acceptance and the perf- uh, the proliferation of the drug economy in, L- in LCN. Yeah, no, that's exactly I, I feel the same way, Scott, from all everything that I that I experienced and I knew. You know, uh, again, you know, looking back on it, you know, you, you like there's some things you like to change in life. And that was one of them, you know. Um, so, you know, I started getting deeper, deeper involved. And um, the uh, I seen this life changing my dad. You know, a lot of stuff that he was saying the way it was, the way he was, was changing. And um, it got to the point where I, one of the things where I survived from today was I was always in businesses. I worked when I was a young kid. I had on my own businesses. I, at 14 years old, I worked in a pizza place, you know. So I always worked one, two jobs. I had a nightclub at 22. And when I say I had a nightclub, I had a nightclub uh, with Jimmy Marcello's nephew, who was a friend of mine. And we both worked it. It wasn't just the front. We were working this. We loved it. I went to the city job. I wasn't a, I wasn't a uh, payroll ghost. I'd work there for eight hours. I'd go work in the nightclub. In the mean, in the middle of that, I'd leave to go meet the guys I had to meet to collect what I needed to collect. So we were working. So I think that's what saved me. And and I started seeing the government getting stronger. I started seeing the mob getting more paranoid towards one another. And I started thinking, you know, I, I don't know if this is what I want to do. And I uh, wound up getting married. In uh, 1988, and my father looked at that as uh, like my wife was a wedge between us. And, you know, I started backing off and I, I didn't, there was a lot I didn't want to do. And he wasn't fair with me either. A lot of times he wasn't fair with me. He wasn't fair with my uncle. He wasn't fair with my brother. And we see a lot of this. And he was very, very controlling. He, you know, fair and money make you control people. My dad was good at that. But the problem was he didn't draw the line from the street and the home. He brought it in the home. 
very controlling out what I want to do, wanted to control my whole life. So it was hard. It was hard. And I started to break away from my dad or trying to break away from my dad. And during that time, things started getting a little a little rough between me and him. Um, and. Oh, geez. So I, you know, sometimes in life, when you, you know, I, I would I actually got a job at a car dealership so that I can work so many hours there that I wouldn't be free for my dad. That's how crazy it was. And uh, my dad got remarried and uh, he was fighting with my uncle, he's fighting with my brother. He's fighting with me. Uh, we see this man changing. He's uh, becoming quicker with his hands, more manipulative uh, and um, more physical and um, and more paranoid. More, I mean, very, very paranoid. Uh, one minute, my dad had these, he was a sociopath. One minute, he was the nicest guy in the world. You talk to a lot of people out there that know my dad, and they might only know the nice side. But the people that don't know the nice side, it was it was not a nice side, okay? He loved to kill. His signature trait to kill you was with a rope and a knife. Um, he was very, very street smart. Talked about never talked about moving up, never flashed money. We had all these rules that he followed: drive Fords and Chevys, don't drive fancy cars, don't pull out a, a wad of money, you go under the table. So it was all this stuff. A, another thing that we we learned was the FBI. They were our biggest enemy. Okay, so when I got up every day, you know, first thing I had to do before I left my house was make sure I wasn't being followed. Okay, and I had a routine. My, I says, my dad used to say they're very sophisticated. They have unlimited resources, unlimited manpower. And guess what's the biggest thing? Frankie, I go, what? He goes, they can make all the mistakes they want and they learn from mistakes. We can't make one. Well, then, dad, if they're an enemy, why, why, why would I respect them? Don't ever make it personal. You do not want an agent to hate you so bad. Kind of like a lot of the agents hated Gotti so bad that that they took it home with them. They slept at night. All they thought about doing, you want them to say, hey, they're calibres. He's not a bad guy, but too bad he chose the wrong way of life. So, you know, all this stuff was instilled in me. This was one of the breaking points, one of the few breaking points where things really started getting serious. I'm working this full-time job. Now the government's getting stronger, and we know it. So we didn't have anything in the house, no book work, no nothing in the house. And we were known on the street for that so that they wouldn't come to the house. So... We would get up in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, and I go meet my dad and my uncle at a different location to do the book work once a week. Then I go right to work the next day. One night I'm late. I get there about 20 minutes late. I coming down the stairs. There's my dad and my uncle at the bottom of the stairs. I step to the bottom step. Bam, he hits me in the side of the head. I go down. He's on top of me, beating me. I see my uncle coming for me, and I'm like, holy shit, maybe they found out about the drugs. Oh, no, I'm trying to cover up. All of a sudden, my uncle starts screaming at my dad, what are you doing? Why are you hitting Frankie for being late? You're not the brother I know no more. I don't want no more. And runs out the door and leaves me with my dad. Now, there's only one man in life that I feared, and that was that man. I respect what other men are capable of. I just don't fear him. Okay. My dad jumps off me, grabs a towel, and he's good dad again. Son, here, go wash your face and hands, please. I don't want to be your home night doing this. Come on, let's get done. And I'm just sitting there, and I'm looking, and I can't believe what's going on. I have legitimate friends that I'm close with that are making legitimate money. 
I have opportunities to make legitimate money. I'm doing this more so for my dad. And I'm starting to say, why do I really need to do this? We can make legitimate money. I don't mind having to do something when it involves somebody threatening your family or going to harm your family. That's fine. But I got a problem with somebody ordering me to do something to somebody because of money, because of some reason that, that really there's other options. So that, that's who I was. About a week later, my dad comes up to me. He goes, don't do it. What, dad? Don't do what? He goes, don't run on me. He goes, the world ain't big enough. I'll find you. I know what you're thinking. You know, that's exactly what I was thinking. Now, what do I got to do? I got two kids now. My, my son was born premature. When I'm at the hospital, my son, um, he's, his lungs weren't developed. So I look up. He's in emergency room fighting for his life. I look up and go, you know what? Take me on, scumbag. I've done so many things wrong. Give, this, give my son a chance. You know what? What's my legacy going to be for these kids? Am I going to put them through all this? Is this going to keep continuing? So you know what? My son makes it. First thing I'm going to do is get the hell out of here. My son made it. The first thing I did was move to an apartment on the far west side under a fictitious name, and I'm going to hide from my dad. While I'm getting my stuff in order, trying to think what I'm going to do, okay, um, I got this family. It's not just me. And I'm against, man, I fear. My father's not bothering me for a while. So I'm like, oh, maybe he's not going to bother me anymore. So some time goes by. One night I'm putting the kids to bed. I happen to look out the back window. It's dark in the room. And who's standing in the parking lot by a pole looking right at my apartment? My dad scared the shit out of me. He didn't see me. I ran. I got my gun. And I sat on the couch in the front room all night long looking in the door. What, which man is going to come to that door? Is it going to be good? Dad, son, what are you doing? We're family. Or is it going to be that sociopathic killer? I told you not to run. Bam, you're dead. He did, he did worse than that. He didn't come to the door that night. Every day I'm walking by, I'm thinking... What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Started getting a little paranoid. You need money when you start new life. My dad, over the years, one of the things he used to do with me and my brothers is he used to hold our money and keep lists of what we had. He'd cash our checks, give us what we needed. We reported to him. I told you, money and fear is what we control people. He's holding over $200,000 of my money. Now, I can't go ask him, hey, dad, can I get that money? Because anytime I talked about my money, you know what he said? It's all going to be yours one day. Don't worry about it. It's safer than a bank. So what did I do? I did something that was thought was good at the time, but was probably the dumbest thing I ever did. I knew where he had, he had hiding places. I went and stole almost $800,000 of his money. My intention was take that money. I bought some restaurants, fueled my drug trade, did some stuff with some people with commodities, make as much money as I can, put his money back, and then take off with the money I got. A couple of years go by. Everything's going great. He doesn't bother me. I get, I call it more dumb. Okay. Oh, he, he knows that's my money. He knows I entered. That's why he's not coming around. One day he shows up at my house. I want my money. He goes, that's Angelo's money. It wasn't my money. I said, well, you had a fallout with Angelo. Um, I'll go kill him. What? I said, I'll go kill him. Then, we won't, then we'll call it even on the money. No, no, no. I, I need to get that money. So he took it. He goes, I own you now. Because you report to me three times a day. I gave him the money I had, sold some stuff. He took over my restaurants, put lean against my house, did everything he could. And I started paying him. My idea was, let me get all this money back as quick as I could. The restaurants are doing good. Maybe he'll leave me alone. I can get on with life. 
father, son will work it out and I'll give him, let him, I'll pay him like protection money every month, you know, so he leaves me alone. Frank, did you, did you like Angelo uh, LaPietra? I, when I was younger, he really liked me a lot. He was, um, I respected him. I respected him. Okay. But wasn't he kind of like your dad too? Like someone well, who enjoyed, enjoyed killing? It wasn't someone who looked at it as business. He actually kind of got off on it. Angelo was a very evil man. Yes. Yes, he did. Very evil. And uh, I remember one time I'd go down to the club and my dad's like, you go down there and you help that man. And I respected him. So I was like, hey, I called him up. Like, what do you need me to do? What do you need me to do? You know, and um, he told me one day he's yelling at everybody. He yelled at everybody. You see these guys. I mean, when he yelled, people got scared. And uh, he starts yelling at me. I said, what the fuck am I thinking to myself? So I says, um, can I talk to you for a second? He goes, yeah, what's up? So I went to the side. I says, look. I says, I'm down here to help you. I said, whatever you need me to do, I will do. I says, if I don't do it, I don't do it right. And you've asked me a couple of times, go ahead and yell at me, slap me in the head, do whatever the fuck you got to do. But please don't yell at me like these other guys. Okay, I'll do what you, he started laughing, gave me a hug, you got it, you know, and I don't think too many people told him, you know, but I told him respectfully, you know, so he, he really, he really had a liking for me. Okay. And I don't know if it's because he's seen a lot of my dad in me too. I don't know. You know, but um, yeah, I respected him. And yeah, he was a very, very treacherous man. He was, Jim, was his brother Jimmy different or similar? Jimmy was a little more laid back, but Jimmy was a stone cold killer. Stone cold killer. Wouldn't even break a sweat. So these guys were, these guys were true street guys. True and street I, guys. I, I'm not, I'm not trying to give your uncle Nicky a pass because he was a, a killer. I mean, he, he murdered multiple people. But I would say being my, you know, putting my armchair psychiatrist hat on, I didn't get the feeling that your uncle enjoyed it. He saw it as, and tell me if I'm wrong, he saw it as business that needed to be done. He was assigned, he was going to do it, but he wasn't going to revel in it the way we're talking about your dad or the Lapitra brothers or so my uncle was Tony Squatro. My uncle was in the Navy. My uncle was very military. And that's what he looked at it as. You know, he idolized my dad like I did. So, you know, you don't question when you idolize somebody and you believe in something, you're not questioning it. Okay. But no, he would not go out and hurt somebody. If a guy didn't have the money, he put it in for him instead of hurting him. So but when my uncle was ordered to kill, he killed just like a soldier. Right or wrong, everybody makes their opinion about that. Years later, after he went through all this, he had a very hard time when he looked back on everything he did. And he had a hard time living with it. And I think that's why he's dead now. It just ate away at him that, and what he did. You know, they, you know and, and, and again, he saved my life in the John Ficarada murder because I was the one that partially came up with the plan. And I was the one that insisted to my dad, hey, let me do this. And my uncle was the one that stepped in when we were almost ready to do it and said, no, I'll handle this alone. Everybody knowing that it was a two-man job, at least, okay, my uncle my uncle didn't want me to cross this line. He goes, once you cross this line, the mob's changing, your dad's changing. It's not like it was years ago. And no, Frankie, I don't. You, you do businesses. You're a good guy. Don't do this. I'm telling you. So, you know, um, my uncle killed his first guy right when he got in with my dad and he, he wasn't, he didn't, he thought they were just testing them. Like I said, they're always yeah, testing. It was, it was the ham bone out Al, Albergo hit, right? 
Yeah, he actually soiled his pants because he knew it was real. Did what he had to do, but soiled his pants. So like I said, my, my uncle, you, you're right. He, he wasn't. That doesn't make it right what he did. No, just, I'm not excusing it. I was no. just uh, making a delineation between some of the characters in this story. Yeah. And, and you know, one thing we're <laughs> going off the topic, you know, what I want to say is that I'm not sitting here bashing the mob. I'm not sitting here bashing organized crime. A lot of guys lived the life the way it was supposed to be, okay? Make a better life for your family. The neighborhood a better place, okay? Be fair with people. Be businessmen until you don't, until you, until there comes a time where you can't be a businessman. Then there were certain guys that start justifying that criminal justification of he looked at me wrong. He's dead, you know? And, 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 and that's, that was my father, okay? That was my father. You know, when you start killing people and, and people get scared and you see how easy it is, it becomes an addiction and they change like this. So, would, would you say at this point, it, it was more about your father bringing you under his thumb as opposed to bringing you into Cosa Nostra, something larger, you know, like this brotherhood, the secret society. Was it, it seems like it was more about just keeping yeah. you. In he wanted orbit. to control you. That's right. Right. I agree with more, you. More than like socializing you in this larger Culture. Right. A lot of people didn't know what level I was. He says, you're my secret weapon. He didn't trust anybody. He needed somebody to trust. You got your son. Just like, I trust my dad. But he looked at it as disrespect when I didn't want to get in it. And when I more with him and when I questioned things that were going on to him. Yeah, that's not right. You tell me one thing, you know, and you see these guys, you know, guys will kill somebody's husband just to be able to date that person, you know, and that's something you don't want to talk. I mean, I don't want to mention names out there. I'm, I'm, I'm friends with people's kids and stuff, and I don't want to, you know, but there were a lot of things that I've seen that I did not agree with. I've seen a lot of infighting between each other. Even though Chicago was one, they still fought against different crews, you know, not outright like New York in a war, but I mean, there was constantly just competition and who could backdoor who. And I'm like, I don't know. I just don't know. And and this this was so you know I'm I'm trying to lay my groundwork to I love the restaurant business was in it all my life I love working love hustling and I'm trying to set this groundwork that you know maybe I can get my dad the rest of this money back keep my restaurants I don't have to take my family and move okay some time goes by and I'm paying him and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and all of a sudden one day he calls me. Hey, son, you know, you're doing a good job. Let's go meet for coffee. Okay, so me, I'm thinking unconditional love. Okay, my dad's going to, I'm going to pay him off. You know, he's going to, we're going to get along. We're going to work on our relationship. This is great. And he's going to leave me alone and not pull me back in. So I go and I meet him by the park. He goes, come on, let's take one car while I take two. Okay, we do it a lot for parking and stuff. I get in this truck. On the way there, I'm sorry, my allergies are bothering me a little bit. Um, on my way there. He goes, I got to stop at the one garage. Garages, work, work, work garages where he had work cars, weapons, all that stuff. He goes, I got to run in and get some. I said, okay. So I'm telling him a funny story while we're driving. This is good dad, 100%. I'm just so happy. We get there. He goes, hey, you got your keys with you? I forgot mine. Take a walk with me. We'll go in there and then let's go for coffee. He goes, but finish that story. I love that story. It's so funny. I'm walking, telling the story. I get to the door. When I go to walk in the door, I put the key in. All of a sudden, the door slam. I turn around. Bam, he's got me by the neck. He's got a gun in my face. And I see that look in his eyes, that killer look. Okay, I call it that glassy eye, thousand yard stare. And the first thing I thought was, oh shit, he set me up. Now I thought I was too smart to be set up. 
Anybody could be set up. And I learned that that night. He goes, I tried controlling you. You're uncontrollable. Oh, shit. He's going to kill me. I got my kids. He's going to bury me somewhere. And they're never going to find me. I got to get out of this garage. He goes, I'd rather have you dead than you disobeying me. So I got real close to him. I'm crying. I'm trying to hug him. And I'm looking right in his eyes to make it as hard as I possibly could. And I'm like, Dad, Daddy, trigger words. I love you. I'm your son. I thought everything was going good. What's going on here? Please, my kids. I just kept going, trying to hit some kind of trigger word. You know, I didn't think I was going to make it out of the, that garage that night because my dad instilled in me, you never pull a gun on somebody unless you're going to use it because it'll come back to haunt you. He took that gun away, put it back on the shelf. While he's driving in the car, he's so pissed I could see that he didn't kill me now that while we're driving every once in a while, he backhanded me to the face. I didn't even put my hands up. I just sat there and took that beating. It didn't hurt here. It hurt here. I can't trust my dad no more. What am I going to do? Um, I went back and got that gun. I had the keys to the garage. It was a five-shot Stumnums revolver, Saturday night special. Carry it in my pocket every day. He says, he ever tries again, I'll kill him with the gun he didn't get me with. This was a bad time in my life. Bad time. I didn't care. Um, all I thought about was killing my dad. Uh, my family, what am I going to do? Maybe I'm better off with, with them without me. I'm a fuck up. Whatever it was, I was thinking I'm a bad person. Then we get indicted in 1995, me, my dad, my uncle, my brother, and about five or six other crew members for an old racketeering thing um, from 78 to, to 92, I believe it was. The whole time I worked with my dad uh, for extortion, racketeering, uh, uh, and trying to carry out our, our juice loan business through threats and violence. Um, and, you know, my first thought when I got arrested this is a blessing in disguise. I need prison. Prison will help me, and it gets me away from my dad. So when I get a lawyer, I find out I'm looking at 10 to 12 years if I fight it and lose. But she tells me that if you plead guilty without cooperating, you're looking at three to five years and $125,000 fine. I'm thinking of my kids, five and six. This is the decision I want to make. When I go to see my dad to tell him I want this decision, I don't trust him. So... You know, actually, I didn't go see him. He found me as smart as he was. I was in a neighborhood cafe, always carried the gun. All of a sudden, his truck pulls up real fast. I'm like, ah, you know what? Today's not the day to tell him. I was just scared. I go to go out the back kitchen door. Who steps in front of the screen door? My dad. I slowly start reaching for my pocket. He sees it. He slowly starts reaching for his. He says, son, please, let's just talk about this. You take your hand away and I'll take mine. Okay, today's the day to tell him. I told him what I want to do. You're not cooperating. I said, it's not cooperating. Mm. You know what? I got a great idea. You still owe me some money. Why don't you plead guilty for me so I don't have to go to prison and I'll take care of your wife and kids and call it even the whole time you're gone. So now I'm looking again from three to five to back to 10. And I'm like, you know what? I'll be away from my dad. I said, okay. Well, the lawyers talked him out of it. Um, so long story short, I'm out on bond. And trying to figure out what I'm going to do next, I find out that there's the drug program in the federal system 18 months off. So what do I do? I purposely party, go see my pre-sentencing officer and tell her I have a drug problem. Now I'm going to violate and um, and I get in, I'm going to get in prison, get the program. 
Prior to that, what I did was she told me that the FBI said, you know what? He's lying. We've been following the Calabrises. They have nothing to do with drugs. He's just trying to get the time off. And I'm thinking, I said, but I, but I peed dirty. They're, yeah, they're offering you a 30-day outpatient program. I'm like, oh, shit. You know, so um, <laughs> I ignore her for a while. I figure the federal marshals are going to come out. They're going to arrest me they'll, and they'll violate me. And I'll get my program. Right. I'll say, you know, this is what I wanted to do. She calls my dad and tells my dad she can't find me. I'm not talking to my dad. I'm avoiding my dad. He does not know about the drugs. I'm at a feast in the neighborhood doing fried calamari. And I got my hand on the fryer. And all of a sudden, who comes up and grabs me? I'm thinking it's the marshals. I look up. It's my dad. He's got me by the hand. He goes, I got two guys trained on you. You come over here and talk to me right now. I walk over there. What's going on? Miss Lolly called me, says she can't find you. That was my presenting officer. This is where I came clean with my dad. He had tears in his eyes. That night, we worked a lot of shit out. And I said, look, dad, it's embarrassing, but this is what I'm trying to do. What my dad thought was that I had second thoughts about going to prison, that I might cooperate against him because he knew how bad our relationship. I says, Dad, I'm going to do my time. I says, I just want less time. I want to get home to my kids. So we made promises to one another in the lawyer's office after that. He asked me to promise him never to do drugs again. And I kept that promise till this day, and I'll keep the promise till the day I die. And I asked him, please don't bring me back into this when we get out. No matter how much you think you need me, I just want to be a family man. I want to work my business. If I can help you, I'll help you if times are hard with money. But I don't want to do any. I don't want any part of your life. And he said, OK. And I went into I went and I violated. Now, what I talked about a little bit at the museum was, you know, when I violated the day I got up to go to prison, I knew I was going. I knew I was going to violate. I was ready for this. I needed this. Those two years on bond felt like purgatory. I, I go down the stairs, and who's at the bottom of my stairs? My two little kids. Daddy, daddy, give us a kiss. You're going to work? Yeah, kids. I don't want them to know what's going on. I give them a kiss. I walk, and my daughter tells me, daddy, don't forget, tonight we're going to make popcorn and watch Little Mermaid. I walked out that door, and I lost it. What, what am I doing to my kids? You know, I never suffered a day in jail. Who suffers is your loved ones, your family, okay? All right? And I, to this day, never forgot that day on the stairs. My kids are who I answer to. They're 33 and 30. They're going to be, my son's going to be 32, okay? And, you know, that was one of the hardest things I ever did in my life. Now, when I got in prison, the next day I woke up, I felt like a million dollars at MCC. And this is the start of my new life. A week later, my mom comes. She's looking at me weird with my younger brother. What's going on? I go, something wrong? Please tell me. I can, I can handle it. My mom's like, there's nothing wrong. You, you look um, you look great. You look better here on the street. I thought this was a bad place. I said, Ma, I'll be fine. I don't want you to come back no more. I says, and I'll see you in a few years. Stay close. Stay close with your grandkids. My wife put her through a lot, and she was scared. And she asked for a divorce. She didn't want to fight. Today, she's my ex-wife. We raised the kids together. We have a nice relationship. I had to tell my kids. I brought them. Daddy, what is this? I says, this is prison. But there's two kinds of people in prison. People who make mistakes and bad people. Daddy made mistakes. When you coming home, I couldn't say three to five years to a six-year-old. I says, I got to pass all the classes. So I'm going to stay here and study as hard as I could. You know, and, and I use my prison experience and everything I did wrong in life to teach my kids that there's a fine line between these clothes and an orange jumpsuit, you know, that you got to take accountability for what you do. 
Can I ask something? Um, was your father, uh, like with your children, his grandkids, was he different around them? Because sometimes you hear these stories about your parent is tough on you, but then they have a soft spot for the grandkids. So what, what, what was that dynamic like? Yeah, he, he, he did. He, he did have a soft spot for the kids, you know, but sometimes he couldn't control himself. One time when we were kind of on the outs, you know, back then we had the pagers, right? There wasn't the, the only cell phone you had was the brick and you were either a drug dealer or a doctor, right? You didn't see mobsters walking around with a brick phone. <laughs> um, so he's paging me and I'm supposed to go out to a phone and I know what phone to call. And I'm not because I'm, I'm my, my daughter's sick, so I can't leave the house. So finally he comes to the house. He walks in the door like he caught me. Come on in. My daughter and my son are right there. And he, and he slaps me in the face. Then he looks down, he sees the kids, he goes, laugh, laugh. It's like, it was a joke. I like, <laughs> and my daughter was just like, like that. You know, he was mad because he thought I was avoiding him. I wasn't, I couldn't go out. But see, that's when he, his temper, he couldn't control it anymore. One thing my dad was bad with was controlling his temper. And he fought that for many years. That's why he stopped drinking two years earlier because liquor made him a mean person. So he, he got rid of liquor. He really fought with that. Back to the, so I'm at MCC. I'm waiting to see where I'm going. You know, I feel like a million dollars. I'm working out. And all of a sudden the list goes up. It says Milan, Michigan, Frank Calabrese. I go to my counselor. That's, that's my dad. He's there. Where am I going? He's already there. Why is his name up here? He wasn't here. He looks and goes, ah, I got great news for you. Sometimes they put family members together. You're one of the lucky ones. You know what I wanted to run? I want, I couldn't run nowhere. I'm, I'm locked down. It's maximum security. Where am I going to go? I freaked out. So I got um, on a bus, wound up in Terre Haute. The planes broke down, so I was in the hole for 16 days, and that's when I dug down deep inside. What am I made of? What am I going to do when I get out, how am I going to make it up to my family? But the biggest thing was I lost the fear of my dad. I'm going to Milan, Michigan with an open mind. I'm going to try to work this out. Okay. I'm going down in security levels. So it's like, you know, it's like great, you know, the freedoms you get now. And, um, but I'm going to give, I'm going to, I don't trust my dad and he's a master manipulator. And so my guard is going to be up. I get to Milan, Michigan. I was down five and a half months before I got there. Okay. I get to Milan, Michigan for eight months. I worked on my relationship with my dad. He didn't know I was divorced. When he found out I was divorced, he thought it was a, he thought it was an opportunity to get me closer to him. Okay. And he seen me doing real good time. And he was, I could see how proud he was in my eyes. I mean, it was funny because we get here and I'm like, hey, dad, you know, I see the guard tower over there. I says, do they shoot you? Do they shoot with the tracer first if you step off the concrete like like a Terra Hut? He goes, huh? Oh, yeah, you get, you, you get a shot. I go, so they shoot here too? No, 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 it's a written shot, you know, and I was like, okay. Oh, I said, this is, not, I mean, I, when I got to, when I got to Milan, I, 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 the guard, he says, hey, so let me get this straight. I could leave this unit and go anywhere in the prison I want. From five o'clock to nine o'clock, he's like, "Yeah," and he's looking at me like, "What? Why? What's wrong?" Well, because where I came from was controlled movement. Everywhere you went was controlled. So, and I was in a nice unit. There were like dormitories, you know, a couple of the units, the newer section. So, anyways, for the whole, I get a, a job in commissary. I'm busting my ass like I did my businesses. 
Guys are getting released. I'm one of the top guys in commissary. I'm making suggestions, ordering stuff, doing stuff like I would do in a business on the street. The guards won that year. The number one commissary for profits and the way it was run for the whole prison system. They each got a $500 bonus, a pizza and beer party. Okay, I had something to do with that. The warden, the girl that ran the warden's staff asked me to be on the warden's board with eight other inmates running stuff. I had a lot of perks. What did I do? I took care of guys from South Philly, from New York, from Detroit, from Chicago. I took care of my dad, always the best fruit and vegetables, and I'm doing my kind. My dad is cornered on the yard one day with a couple of guys um, from, from, from the life. And they're like, hey, Frank, we got to tell you something. Your son, he's really a, a, a good guy, a stand-up guy. He's always taking care of us, got, got our back. He's doing good time. What guys should do better time. I had a guy, Shorty Lamantia, come right up to me and say, you do the best time I've ever seen. I wish I could do time like you. You know what my dad says to him? My son, that's me. I tell them what to do. They're all looking at my dad like, is this guy jealous of his son? What's going on? Why would you say that? That was a compliment. When I found out, I was pissed. You know, I went and confronted my dad on the yard. It got so bad between us. We were bumping shoulders and everything. I says, Dad, you know what? I says, you're a piece of crap, and I don't fear you no more. What? I go, that's right. He goes, yeah, I figured that. I go, you know, you, you, uh, I says, I got some problems with you. He goes, what? I go, you don't draw the line anywhere. You tried to extort my brother, Kurt, at Tony and Tina's wedding. My brother owned half of Tony and Tina's wedding, or a third in Chicago. My dad sent the guy in there to extort him. He goes, what are you talking about? I go, you sent somebody in there. I mentioned the guy's name. I go to extort Kurt. Huh? He goes, you know what? He goes, no, I didn't. Who told you that? I go, nobody. See, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, I seen it on a camera. Camera, who had cameras? I said, dad, you idiot you sent in went right under the security camera. I watched the whole thing and left. I'll be right back. I got to go to the bathroom. We're going to finish this conversation. See, I knew my dad. He's going to figure out this story. He goes, he comes back with all these lies. And at that point, I said, I'm done with this guy. He's never going to change. I gave him eight months. He wants to screw me. He's trying to pull me back in because he's talking about when I get out, we're going to be back together again. So this is where I made this huge decision that, that, was the biggest decision I ever made in my life. First of all, I was taught from my dad, don't make a decision out of anger. Think it through, look at everything before. Make sure that you can live with this decision for the rest of your life. So I'm trying to think of different options I have. And sometimes in life, you have to make a decision over the choices you have. And sometimes the choices you have all suck. It came down to two choices that I could think of. Wait till I get on the street, go against my dad. Well, guess what? He's good at killing. I'll probably wind up that, okay? Or if I do get lucky enough to get him, I may wind up in jail for the rest of my life. What good's that going to do? The other one was the FBI. Contact the FBI. I'm thinking, wait, hold it. I'm not doing bad time. And um, I don't know if I control the FBI. I, 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 I trust them. I, I don't know. So I, I came up with an idea. A business proposition to the FBI. So I went to the prison library. I wore winter gloves for no fingerprints. I typed it for no handwriting. I didn't put anything personal in there in case it got intercepted. I could say, that's the government trying to set us up, Dad. Okay. And I sent this thing out. 
And it was months before they came. Now, I found out from them later on that when they got that letter, first of all, they couldn't believe what they got. They weren't even sure if it was real. Then the legalities of my lawyers couldn't know. And is he doing bad time? We need to get him out there and get him in front of a grand jury. That's protocol. Get him in front of a grand jury. He changes his mind. He can't. So what I put in the letter basically was, you know, that nobody can know for my safety. Don't bring any recording devices. Not even my lawyer can know. And um, I want to help you keep this sick man locked up forever. It was basically what I put in the letter. I tried to type a capital low. I made it look like a real whack job letter if I could. So when they finally came out, they're like, what do you want? What do you want? I says, well, this is what I want. No disrespect to you guys. I says, no immunity. I'll do all my time. I'll pay all my fines, but I want to help you against my dad. Not the mob, not anybody else. Just my dad. Well, will you wear a wire? I says, hell no. He caught guys twice on the street. He's too smart with that. You know, we're not even supposed to talk about anything after it's done. I says, I'm going to feed you dry beef. I'm going to feed you information, point you in the right direction so you can get my dad. So they left. They came back a couple weeks later with the information I gave them. Now, the hardest part that I, that that wound up happening, that I, I tried as much as I could that didn't want to happen, was in order to get my dad in trouble, I had to talk about what my uncle did with the Ficarada murder, which put him in there. Yeah, uh, Frank, Frank let, let me, I just, because it's such a fascinating story about Ficarada and how Ficarada's murder 20 years later ends up solving the Spilato brothers murder. So let me just give the audience a quick primer and then I'll throw it back to you and you can give some color. So for people that might not know uh, the whole family secrets case um, that, that dropped in, in April of 2005, first you can trace it back to, to uh, our guest here's decision to reach out to the FBI. But what he just referenced was, his uncle and Nick Fecarata, or sorry, his uncle Nick and Big John Fecarata, a.k.a. Big Stoop. And after the Spilato brothers are murdered in June of 1986, you saw in the movie Casino, does, it doesn't happen in a cornfield. It happens in, in a basement, and then they're disposed of in a cornfield. And John Fecarata, who was uh, a, a big-time mob enforcer close to a lot of uh, big-time shot callers, a guy that had been involved in numerous murders, uh, had been in charge in in some way, shape, or form of burying the Spilatros. Spilatros are found within a week of the burial. Uh, the higher-ups in Chicago are upset at this. is already kind of on thin ice with the leaders or the powers that be in Chicago because of uh, some other things that were going on. I know that he was bringing his girlfriend or a wife along on scouting missions uh, out West to look at trying to kill the Spilatros before they actually were killed. I know that he won uh, a, a casino payday on one of these visits and the, the outfit said, you can't take that money because you have to, uh, you know, sign things and, and whatnot. And he kind of ignored, ignored them because uh, it would have placed him close to Spilatro. Uh, and then they decide to murder him. Frank's father and uncle are given the job. Frank said earlier in this interview that he was actually going to be involved with his father, but his uncle stepped in and they tell Fecarata that they're going to, uh, well, what do they tell John? What do they tell John to get him in the car? Well, we're going to extort a dentist. 
So they get him in the car. They're driving. Uh, Frank and and Nick are in the front seat. Uh, John Fakarada is in the back seat. John Fakarada was a big guy. And uh, Frank's uncle, Nick, turns around and shoots Fakarada. Fakarada has a gun himself and, like, starts fighting with Nick uh, Calabrese in the car. The car eventually comes to a stop. Nick Calabrese at this point has been shot by Fekarata's gun. Fekarata takes off. Nick chases him, eventually catches him in the vestibule of a bingo hall, executes him in front of a group of people, and then runs back to the car that's being driven by Frank Sr. What eventually comes back to haunt him is the fact that he dropped a bloody glove um, that's recovered at the scene by the FBI in, in the fall of 1986. And nobody knew who this glove belonged to, who the blood on the glove belonged to. And it was this big mystery for up, you know almost 20 years. And now I'm going to throw it back to Frank. Frank, because of knowledge of this family event, um, lets the FBI know that, hey, you know that Fekarata hit and that bloody glove that's my uncle's blood and this glove. And that propelled or resulted in the FBI going to Nick where he was locked up. He, he had, and, and you can talk about this, Frank, uh, your dad was trying to kill Nick in prison. Jimmy Marcel and him are telling people that Nick might go bad. So the feds go to Nick say, not only is your brother and Jimmy Marcel trying to kill you, we're about to get a, um, a, a court order to get your, a shoulder uh, x-rayed and I talked, I talked to, or your arm, I talked to uh, the the FBI agents that actually said this to him and they're saying, we know what we're going to see. That x-ray is going to light up like a fucking Christmas tree (laughs) and we're going to know, we're going to be able to tie this whole thing back to you. So that's what you were saying when you're talking about John Baccarata, but it's interesting how that thing laid dormant from 86 to what, 98, 99 when, when, uh, when you yeah. provided them the intelligence that allowed them to kind of figure out what happened. And then that's the thread that kind of you, you pull that thread and then all of family secrets is kind of created. And the, the invincibility of the outfit, when you pull that thread is, is kind of, if all falls apart. Can I follow up with something? Why would uh, your uncle and father share that information with you? Was that, was that normal for oh. them to, that's a good question. So I'm going to jump back here to the Ficarada murder. Okay. Okay. Because I wasn't, you know, I couldn't be in the courtroom when, when other people were testifying. So John Ficarada, we don't know. And I know my uncle didn't get on the stand. And so when the Spalacho brothers were murdered, everybody was put in vans and left. And the bodies were left there on the floor of the basement because they didn't want anybody to know where they were being buried. So we don't know if John Ficarata was the reason. Right. It doesn't make a lot of sense. If you, if you look at the facts that we know, we know that Albert Taco, uh, Caesar the Fox was the one that actually his crew was burying the Spalatros and him and his crew got separated and he ends up having to call his wife. He's all bloodied. The wife ends up flipping so really, on its face, it looks like Albert Taco should have been the one that had to kind of uh, pay the piper, if you will. But for whatever reason, they blame Fekaran. Yeah, and and um, 
there was so much more to John. So, so what had happened was when my uncle was in Vegas and another thing too, is I have all my uncle's 302 stuff that wasn't made public. Uh, I have all the court testimony, thing, which will be on display at some point at the mob museum, which is a lot of cool stuff. He talks about who killed, um, uh, Giancana, Richard Kane. And you're going to see through all these that John Ficarada was a badass. Okay. He was very street smart. He was close with my dad and my uncle, always carried a gun. And this guy was treacherous and he was involved in a lot of big murders. He was part of that inner China town crew. Okay. Which, you know, Monteleone, Ficarada, my dad, my uncle, Ronnie Jarrett, uh, Jamila Picha, Angel. I mean, these guys were stone cold killers. Okay. And they worked together. Anyways, John was changing just like my dad was changing. Okay. Uh, Johnny DeFranzo owned a car dealership. John went and got a, John um, Ficarada went and got a car and he wasn't paying Johnny. Johnny was getting pissed at him. My uncle, when he was in Vegas, and I also have all the 302s of when they were trying to kill Tony in Vegas and everything that happened too, which is some pretty interesting stuff. But anyways, um, John brought, he was having an affair with his brother who died's wife, and he brought her out there and introduced her to everybody with the real names. He won 20 something hundred dollars gambling and he made my uncle sign for it. Now my dad was pissed. Why would you do that? My uncle says, Frank, he's my boss. I'm a soldier. He tells me to sign it. I think he's doing the right thing. He's changing. So they were mad. The final straw, and they didn't know any of that. My dad says, we're going to keep this to ourselves and put it in our back pocket in case we need it later. But John is changing. Well, John went to a guy that used to pay us $500 a week for years. And he put a gun to the guy and says, you quit paying the Keller. He says, you pay me. Guy got scared. He started paying John. When he when my dad went to see him, where's my money? He says, well, I was told to pay John now. My dad puts a knife to him. You better pay me my fucking money. This guy's like, what's going on here? I don't want to die. I've been paying for years. My father goes, I'll handle it. He went to Angel and he told him everything. Then Angel went to see who he's got to see. And they says, you know what? John, we've had enough of John. He's changing. He's not the man we knew. We want him dead. Calabrese, you and your brother have it. My dad came back, and I'm sitting with them. This is your answer to your question, Jimmy. Okay. All right. It's 1986. You know, this is my family. Look what they did to my uncle, my dad, all this stuff. John's very street smart. I don't know how we're going to do this. I. This is when I step up. I said, Dad, let, let me kill him. He goes, what? I go, listen to me. Let John think that you want him to be my mentor. And if I go with Uncle Nick, his guard will be down. My dad liked it. So we sat, we talked. He wanted to make sure I was ready. He knew I was ready. So we started practicing. My dad was the one that came up with the plan. I'm going to sit in the back seat on the passenger side, my uncle in the front seat. My uncle's going to have a box with fake dynamite in it. He's going to have a gun. When we pull back there, my uncle's going to radio to John Ficker, not John. My uncle's going to radio to Johnny Apes and my dad driving around in two different cars and work cars and let him know, hey, we backed into the dock. We're going to unload it. That means ready to go. While he's doing that, I'm going to reach over John's shoulder and say, John, you see, I see somebody peeking out over there. Did you see them? When he goes to look, I'm going to shoot him. My uncle's going to shoot him. We're going to exit the car and be picked up. We practiced in the basement on cheers. A week or so before it was supposed to happen, my uncle said, let me do this alone. I'll keep Frankie's gun on me as a backup. If I'm alone with John, his guard will be down. He trusts me, which was true. 
I got pissed at my uncle. What are you doing? And that's when he came back and told me alone, I don't want you crossing this line. My uncle, when they pulled back there, so I was out of the area then, but I had my pager. I had my rule. I had my orders on what I had to do and all that stuff, which I did follow through at the point when, when everything was said and done. But my uncle this time, instead of shooting John in the car, he was supposed to step out of the car and shoot back in. He was supposed to radio. After he radioed, he was supposed to step out of the car, shoot back in. Now, when they got there, a trick that we also did, too, was there was a gun in the glove box. My uncle opens the glove box. This is your gun if you need it. Okay. Well, it's a revolver sitting there. You could see it, it's positioned so you could see the bullets in it and everything. But what he didn't know was that we filed down the firing pins and tested it so it didn't work. When my when my uncle pulled out the gun in the car and didn't radio, John sees it. This is how smart he was. John starts fighting my uncle. My uncle pushes him up and, and he shoots, but it goes through his arm into John. He hits John twice. John fights with the gun, dumps out the bullets, gets out of the car and starts running for the bingo hall. Uncle's got my gun, chases him, and in the middle of the street in traffic and everything, he runs up and assassinates him in the back of the head and takes off. Now, when he's running, he's trying to wash the blood off, and he's got to get rid of the gloves because it's September, right? It's a warm night. Well, when he thought he stuck them in his pocket, he dropped one of them. So that's the reason why I knew about all this. It wasn't them sitting there bragging. It was because I was involved in a lot of this stuff. Not right there involved but involved in some way, shape or form. And tell Frank, this is just my inclination. And I think this can like segue back to uh, your story and, and in this, these machinations that are uh, going in uh, through 98, 99, uh, 2000 before the uh, case actually hits. Wouldn't you say, and you've, I'm guessing you might've talked to your uncle about this after the fact. Don't you feel like maybe you did your uncle a favor that, you know, this was something that he was looking for an out to. Yeah, you know, and actually my uncle dumped the gun in the catch basin and I had to go back there and get it and get it back so we can get rid of it properly. And then Jimmy Marcello had a um, a veterinarian that had to tend to my uncle's wounds. That's why the bullets were still in there. You know, so, I mean, it was it was it's like was, uh, in the Sopranos when they well, my uh, uncle, at the ED, the ED doctor doing uh, yeah, yeah, surgery. True. I mean, it's, it's true. Some of this stuff, you know, and um you know, my uncle was having a problem with my dad. He was having a problem with my dad on the street. After I had the problem with my dad, my uncle had the problem with my dad. And during that time, my dad's running out of people around him. So he pulls my youngest, I mean, my middle brother, Kurt, in to help him with bookwork, some collections, stuff like that. And Kurt's working for the union. Kurt is unbelievable with the union. He could have took over the local in Chicago, but he would never do that to my cousin who was running it, okay, with my uncle as the president. You know, my, my brother was very loyal to that. And my dad pulls him in this. My brother's a great guy. Everybody loves him. But my dad's pulling him into something he doesn't belong in. You know, and, and this is how desperate my dad was getting. You know, it got so bad, my uncle did what I was doing, ignoring my dad, not going around my dad. And my dad one night tells me, we, I need to talk to Uncle Nicky. I want you to get him over to this Dunkin' Donuts parking lot. And him and Ronnie were going to be there, Ronnie Jarrett. And I went in the house and I says, look, I think my uncle, my dad wants me to set you up. They're over there. So I'm, I'm telling you, I wouldn't go. He goes, I ain't going. He goes, I don't, I, goes, I don't want nothing to do with him. So after that, he went to see Johnny Apes. 
and I didn't know this till till later on. He went to see Johnny Apes, and he told Johnny the problems he was having with his brother. Now that bothered me because I thought he should have never did that. Because once you start airing your laundry outside the family, you become um, disposable. Oh, these guys are fighting. They killed people with us. They could put us away forever. You know what? Let's just get rid of them the first chance we have. Wow. Anyways, he tells Johnny, you know what Johnny Apes does? Hands my uncle an old revolver and says, look, I like you. I like your brother. But if you're having problems, this is the best I can do. Do what you got to do. So basically gave him this blessing to kill my dad, which my uncle never did. Well, my brother is telling me, you got to kill dad. You got to kill dad. You got to kill dad. He's getting out of hand. I go, Kurt, it's not that easy. Okay, it's not just, hey, you got to, well, I can't do it. And I says, well, I'll tell you what, let's go see Uncle Nicky. I says, I'll talk to Uncle Nicky. If he will help me, we'll take it from there. But I don't want you involved. So we go see my uncle. He goes, no, I don't want to get involved in anything. He goes, the best I can do. He hands me the gun, Johnny Apes hands in. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is, this is where. So this is how crazy it was on the, on the street for a while in my family. So just for, for, for people that might not put two and two together there's a scene in casino where uh the joe pesci character and the frank colada character are doing a walk and talk and the frank uh, the character was frank marino but it was supposed to be frank colada he says to the the tony Spatro character uh you know tony gorilla says if you're fucking the the jew's wife there's going to be a problem and i tony gorilla was with johnny apes like they, oh, they, just cha- they just changed the name. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, sorry. That, I I, well, I, I, that, that I digress. Is. But I always found that funny that they called Johnny Apes Tony Gorilla in uh, in the in the movie. Uh, in yeah, I, did, I, did not, I did not know that. So so getting getting back to the prison. Okay, so the FBI's here in there. Okay, I won't wear a wire to this. They go back. They come back with all this information, and they're excited. But they bring the prosecutor, Mitch Myers. Mitch Myers was a guy that we all knew on the street. This guy was one of the top prosecutors. You did not want him on your case. He was very smart and he could have made millions on the street, but he wanted to stay with the government and do the right thing. He had this thing about. He had been making mob cases uh, in the prosecutor's office. Uh, Your case, the, the, the family secret trial that I covered was 2007. His case dropped in 05. Mitch Myers was, was making cases Back in the late seventies, early eighties, I mean, he had, he was a OG prosecutor who yeah, had been him working and John the for thirty we years. Knew, yeah, him and John Scully, we knew. And John, I think John's a judge now, or he's retired. But we knew those names on the street. Those were the prosecutors you didn't want on the case, you know. And our other case, we had this prosecutor that was brand new. We were like, yes, you know, <laughs> we had a brand new prosecutor, which he didn't even wind up trying us because. He took a, a private job right away, right? Fresh out of the office. This so, is another, just to give people context again. This case, Family Secrets, if, if you're unaware, this was the equivalent of the commission case in New York City. This was the biggest organized crime prosecution from a U.S. attorney's office, uh, uh, an assault on organized crime, the biggest outside of New York and the biggest ever uh, in Chicago. And the only comparison you could make uh, in the history of of the judicial system, the federal judicial system would be New York's commission case. That's how big Family Secrets was. Yeah, and and it was because the commission case was the first time you used the RICO Act the way it was right. supposed to be used. Go after the organization, not individuals. And this was the first time in Chicago they they ever did it. Yes. Yep. Um. So, uh, Mitch Myers sits down with me 
And he talks to me about, about 20, 20 minutes, you know, and then he leaves. Well, I find out later on, he went back and he, he came out to see what kind of condition I was in. You know, am I doing bad time? Am I, you know, am I all messed up? What's going on? So he goes back to these guys. And I found this out years later. He tells them, he said, this kid is in excellent shape. His mind is great. This isn't something he thought about overnight. This is 20 years in the making. He finally has had enough of his father trying to control his life and, and, and ruining it. Well, they never don't put him in front of a grand jury. And they never did. So when they came back in, I says, look, I've been thinking about this. My dad's such a master manipulator. I need to get him in his own words. You know what? I'll wear a wire, but please, guys, follow my lead. So I told them some ideas of what to do. And um, they went to Quantico and they made these James Bond type wires. Now, you know, uh, how do I get my dad to talk? What do I? Hey, dad, let's go out here and have a, a coffee and reminisce about all the murders you did. You know, I mean, this guy's street smart. So what I did was I went out without a wire and I seen my dad. I said, hey, I want to talk to you. I mean, this is a point where I know he wants to try to work stuff out. And we were getting some heavy shit. Um, I go, you know what? I thought about it. I want back in with you when I get out. But I got some issues with you. I got some real bad issues with you, dad. And you know what? We don't straighten these issues out. Not only do I not want back in, but I don't want nothing to do with you anymore. You're not my father if we don't straighten this out. He looked at me. He goes, okay. So I said, you, are you interested? And he goes, yeah. I go, you tell me when you want to sit. We want to sit down. We got all the time in the world. He goes, well, well you're not working tomorrow. Are you? I go, no, let's do it tomorrow. I went back. They wired me up that morning and I went out there. And what I did was I, 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 I used what my dad taught me in life. You know, when you want to get somebody to talk, anger, liquor. My dad didn't drink, so anger. He's mad at my uncle. Okay, know the person. I knew my dad better than anybody. The FBI had a wish list, but they let me handle it. Okay, they let me control the whole thing, which was great. We worked well together, which I didn't know if we were going to or not, but we did very well. And I pit my dad against my uncle. So he says, you know, Frankie, he goes, I've really seen a different you in here, and I think we've worked on our relationships, and I'm so happy you want back in. As a matter of fact, when you get out, you're going to take over the crew at Ronnie till I get home, but you're going to earn it. He gives me the name of the first guy he wants me to kill is when I first see this time he wants me in. He wants me to earn it. I know he's thinking. He gives me the name of a guy named Ralph Lusa who worked for us. He wants him dead. He wants me to kill him as soon as I get out. That's how I'm going to earn taking over with Ronnie. He goes, now, what's your issue with me? I use my uncle. I said, Uncle Nicky said that you're a piece of shit that you killed an innocent woman in the Dauber murder. What? First of all, Frank, she wasn't innocent. I was I was in the crash car with Ronnie, the lead car, you know, and, and what about him in, in, in the half and half murder in Cicero? He killed the innocent postcard. Man, my dad went off. My dad was so pissed. He got this fixation that my uncle's not going to be able to stand up. So he's talking. We're going to all this elaborate stuff. He gets word to Jimmy Marcello. And the guys in Pekin that my uncle is at, that my he gives him his blessing to do what they got to do. And he doesn't think my brother's going to hold up, that he's the weak link. They try to kill my uncle. They try to kill my uncle. And one of the guys slipped a note to the warden to get time off. So they locked everybody down. They shipped my uncle to Kentucky. They shipped Jimmy to, um, to Milan, Michigan. And my uncle was rooming with Harry Allman. <laughs> so can you imagine how, how close all that was? You know, and Harry Allman, for somebody that doesn't know, I mean, this guy yeah. was, you know. Harry bad. the Hook, he was yeah. the original Wild Bunch. 
Yeah, original Wild. I mean, he was the captain of the Wild Bunch hit team. Exactly. Here, here's a guy that'll put a bag over his head, walk on Taylor Street, walk right up in front of everybody and shoot somebody. Everybody knows who it is, but nobody said a thing. We, we did an episode, uh, Frank, we'll send it to you. Uh, we did a big episode on him uh, related to, I don't know if you knew about this, there was a... Um, execution on a on like new year's day down in phoenix in the early 80s oh, yeah. um related to to bobby uh, uh his cousin uh, uh joe ferriola's ne- uh, ne- uh allman was ferriola's nephew and then there was a uh i'm, I'm blanking on like a bobby cruz i think his name was yeah it wasn't an italian name it wasn't I italian can't and, I can't and they that. uh they that name. yeah they killed this couple uh down in phoenix and the guy who pulled the trigger was an African-American gangster uh, who they executed in the last year. Uh, the first time uh, capital murder in Arizona in like 30 years or something. And oh, we wow. did an episode on it. We'll send it. But, but Harry Alman played a role in that whole story. So, Sorry, I digress. No, again. no, that's okay. So, you know, these meetings between my dad were hard because, you know, this is my dad. You know, this is what it's come down to. You know, you're always hoping and wishing, you know, we could be working this out, you know, and it, w- it was hard on me emotionally. And then I can't make one mistake. See, the danger level is so high that the warden didn't want to okay it. This guy's going to get killed in my prison because all the concrete in my island, when I left that office, if anybody see me going to or from the office, I'm a dead man. I don't know. I left that office. I got wires. Nobody knows because they're, they're, they're James Bond types. But, um, the FBI just sat there and waited for me, or the prison alarm would go off. I'm dead on the yard. I had no backup. I'm I'm alone. I'm totally alone, and I was okay with that. Okay, you know, I had a job to do, and I knew what I needed to do once I made that decision. So after a while, I didn't find out till later on. The FBI said that they seen this wearing on me a little. I didn't feel it. I didn't see it. Um, they were concerned about the safety factor. You know, how many times are we going to meet before something mistake goes? Well, it came down to this. This was their final decision. I'm ready to go out in the yard and talk to my dad. He wants he wants me to go to Cusco. He wants me to know what's going on in the street. I haven't been around for a while. Okay, um, who's in charge? Who to watch out for? Who to trust? You know. And then, so before I'm ready to leave this office, the James Bond wires ain't working. Hmm. Like, well, we got to do this another time. I said, well, I just can't tell my. I can't hold him off too long. He's going to catch on. Can you hold them off till tomorrow morning? I go, yes. I just tell them I got a headache. I'm not feeling good. We've done that before. They go to the Detroit office. They come back with the next morning. They got a metal box like this <laughs> with wires like you got on your ears, Scott. And they tape me up with white medical tape all over my chest. And they put it in a jack strap between my legs. It's 100 degrees. <laughs> these guys, very inconspicuous. Yeah, these guys are like, Frank, you really don't have to do this. I said, no. I said, this is the only opportunity we were getting. And I could see the look in their eyes. This kid ain't coming back alive today. Okay. But, you know, he's insisting on doing it. I get out there. My dad gets done telling me, I mean, unbelievable. Right. Spilatros, who was here, who was doing this, who was doing that in detail, which collaborated with my uncle testifying and that on tape. Anyways, he steps into me and grabs my shirt. And I'm like, oh, shit, it still goes through my body. Now, I thought about punching my dad and running for the door. I got to go past the bocce court. Okay, nobody's on my side. I'm dead. So I step back. I grab my shirt. I go, dude, what are you, what are you doing? I said, I want to see that tattoo you just got. You know they're illegal in here. I go, yeah. And I'm holding my shirt. I go, look, the guard over there. Go look at him. I says, if he sees it, he'll put me in a hole. I ain't going to be able to get you the vegetables and all the other stuff anymore. Oh, yeah, good one. Yeah, show me tomorrow. I walked away. 
I was like this. The FBI said, that's it. I was able to get transferred to another prison for the drug program because there was a waiting list that got a lot of guys did it. I wound up down in Coleman, Florida, where I finished my time and I went and I got back out on the street. You know, people, when I say I didn't, I did all my time. So the one thing I asked the FBI, there were two things I asked the FBI and they did it. I said, I have a lot of legitimate friends and my family members that I don't want to put them in the middle of this. I said, please don't pull them in the middle. And, and number two, I don't want to lose any time. I'm in line for this drug program. If you got to pull me, if you got to do anything, I don't want to lose any time because of this. So, you know, they made sure I didn't lose time. I, um, so I was a couple months short of my actual time that I had to do, but that, that would have been lost time. So I did get out, I think, two months earlier. I did 33 months out of, uh, out of uh, uh, 52 or 56, I think. So with the good time, the drug program and everything like that, it, it all worked out. But it was a little short of actual, you know, with the program. So let's, let's fast forward to the trial. Summer, yes. of o, summer of 07, a young Scott Bernstein is in the uh, media section uh, every day, taking notes, preparing for uh, my my first major book release. Um, me and Frank are two of the only three people that put a book out about the Family Secrets, uh, sh- uh, shameless self-promotion. Go get Frank's book. Go get my book. Um, and we'll give Frank, a t- uh, you know, when we're done with the interview, a chance to, to shout out all the places you could find him. But uh it was something, you know, you lived a, your life and, and your family's life is like out of a movie. But for me, as a 28-year-old covering his first trial, you want to talk about being thrown in the deep end. And I loved it. I loved being in the deep end. But covering that trial was like what everything I envisioned of covering a major mafia trial, it, it fit that belt you know the the cameras were everywhere the 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 tension you could cut it with a knife the the characters or the the the, the actual you know stars of the show your father jimmy marcello uh joey lombardo were living in uh, frank schweiss but we're living up to uh the billing i, I remember the first uh hearing i uh covered in the trial was for, uh, was when they um caught frank uh, the German in December of, of 05. And I covered his arraignment. And uh, that was literally my first time. And of course it was a, you know, two years before the trial, but I was starting to cover some of the um, hearings and, and Frank Schweiss again, lived up to the billing. They roll him in, in a wheelchair and he starts throwing threats out at people in the middle of the court, this 80 year old killer with an oxygen mask um, growling and barking uh, so I just wanted to set the scene. I didn't know Frank at this time, uh, but I saw him on the stand. His uncle took the stand. His uncle was the first made member of the Chicago Mafia to ever testify. And his father took the stand. So I'm and interested. Lombardo. Well, and Joey Lombardo took the stand. But just talk about your testimony. Obviously, you couldn't watch your father or your uncle because you had, uh, you know, you couldn't be in the courtroom. Heels, motions, all that. You can only but, go testify then you got to leave but just you know talk about being this was the last the home stretch of your cooperation you got to get on the stand your uncle needs to get on the stand and you need to really you know you're at the goal line now you got to punch it in and make sure that the convictions stick that he's found guilty and then you really get to you know 
hit hit the jugular. Yeah, you know, I did like my father did. I used everything he taught me. This was not a game. This was not a show. Okay, it was very emotional to me. See, I only went against my dad. I really opened the doors for all this. But when they tried to go against my uncle, first made member ever to testify, okay, in Chicago, okay, like that, because there weren't a lot of guys that made members that would testify. My uncle was involved in so much stuff and he had so much knowledge. So in this, if you go all the way back to the early 1900s, there's like 14 solved murders of over 1,200 murders. Okay, in this case alone, 18 solved and close to 40, this is per FBI, close to 40 um, murder solved. Giancana, Richard Kane. I mean, a lot of them that nobody knew who the players were. They had a list. I, I, I seen that list from a distance one time, and I looked as best as I could, and I wasn't supposed to when we were doing stuff. And they had who was there. Who did what through all the different cooperating witnesses? In fact, I have Jerry Scarpelli's um, uh, 302s too, you know, which are very interesting. So that's all going to be that's a whole. That's a whole other episode. Jimmy that's and I were going to for people that know Jerry Scarpelli was a uh, Wild Bunch member who flipped and then he was a strong bad ass guy, yeah. and he flipped and then he ended up suspiciously dead in MCC. Oh, he killed himself. He killed himself. Killed himself yeah. uh, was, before before uh, before he could ever testify. But that that's, was... that's the kind of balls he had. Okay. Yeah. He really testified because he wanted to get his girl off the hook. This is what was told to me through my father and my uncle, which was handed down from them through the hierarchy. And as soon as he did, and as soon as she was released, he knew that if he killed himself, they had this information, but they could never use it, and that's why he did it. But you, are uh, you? Go ahead. Yeah, I. Sorry to digress, but are you comfortable? I know you have a something in the works releasing that information. Are you comfortable now uh, discussing what what you saw happen at Giancana? That's always been kind of murky. What the uh, the situation behind his? Well, it, was, it was his uncle that told them what he. Yeah, when the three hundred two. But my well, dad had told me one time, but it was my uncle. 302s where I learned exactly what it was, okay? And then I had a conversation with my brother, Kurt, too, because my uncle had told my brother, Kurt. But it was my uncle's 302s. So I got a lot, I'm in possession of a lot of stuff from my father's belongings, because rightfully it went to me. But I think the government might have accidentally, I don't know if they did or not, left a lot of stuff in there that I shouldn't have got. So I learned a lot from all that. Um, I did not know, other than what my father had told me, prior to that okay and it's a whole story so i mean you want me to go into it real quick or do you want to i, I, I would i would like yeah that. doesn't it doesn't it implicate tony <laughs> and like it, it implicates tony accardo i think it, it does so it, and, and and look i wasn't there my dad wasn't there my uncle wasn't there okay so you know i'm just telling you what i was told and it made sense and that's what i tell people okay first of all look at tony accardo Here's a man that never did a night in jail. Here's a very man that knew how to kill. Here's a man that's trying to go legit with everything. I mean, this is one of the most powerful mob bosses where he was trying to take over the years, right? I'd say I'd say he's the most powerful mafia boss in American history. That's my personal okay. opinion. Very you, could, you could argue you could argue some guys from New York, but I don't think anybody in terms of longevity and pound for pound, top pound for pound, top to bottom shot calling. I don't think anybody. Uh, Mr. Manipulator, right? He got Bill Romer to love him. 
But yet Tony Spolaccio, Bill Romer, hated him and made it personal. Okay, that Tony Accardo didn't trust Romer. He didn't trust the FBI. It was all just like they were doing. It was a game of chess back and forth, okay, trying to work things out. Tony was very smart. Now, when Sam, when they felt Sam had a goal for a lot of reasons, okay, everybody says it was his 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 um, bodyguard, trusted best friend, Butch Blassie, yeah. or it was Tony Spilatro. Yeah. What I look at is this, and this is what I was told. When I'm telling you this, I'm telling you this through my dad and my uncle and sitting with them, which which I learned, which makes sense. You're going to – Sam Giancana was a very treacherous man, and he was a very smart man. He knew he fell out of favor, okay? So in this life, if you get whistled for and you don't come, you're dead, right? Do you think Tony's going to whistle for him? Sam ain't dead dumb, Right. Okay, so what did Tony do? He sets up something where he's going to come to his house alone, right? F- FBI, local police sitting outside. You think he's going to let Tony Spilatro in? Butch Blassie was close with him. And this is what I don't know, okay, what Butch Blassie's part. He said he never wanted to talk about it on any 302s or anything. I'll never talk about that murder. And, you know, you, Butch Blassie is not happy with the new mob now. Okay, and the way they're treating Sam and him. So are you, Tony Accardo, going to trust Butch Blassie? You can't trust anybody because you're 60, what was he, 63, I think? 63 or 66? 63, my age. Because if something falls through, you're going to jail for the rest of your life, right? Okay, who knows more on Tony than Sam? So you set up a meeting where you want to come to the house and, and, and you want to talk about, you know, the trial coming up in a couple of weeks. So how we got in, I don't know. Okay. All right. Never talked about that. All I know was that it was a a, a 22 with a silencer and that it was Tony Cardo and that Tony dropped the gun in a bad place. He didn't mean for it to be found. Okay. 22 doesn't have a big kick on it. All right. Now, how in the 302, it was Angelo telling my dad and my uncle, the old man, never too old for heavy work, heavy work. (laughs) Killing somebody. Now, if you well, let me ask one more thing, or let me just interject this. That to me could be a indicator of a Cardo's presence. So we know that Giancana was shot in the back of the head while he was preparing a meal of sausage, sausage peppers. peppers. So he now he turned his back on somebody he trusts, trusted, right? And he was cooking. I feel like in other situations, somebody would be cooking for Sam. Since Tony Accardo was over Sam, Sam was cooking for Tony. I don't know. That's just my, again, my, uh, my quick, uh, I mean, um, insight into, um, the potential that, 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 that little fact could, could lend merit to them. Going on the, the, you know, they said, well, the police, the police left for a few minutes. Well, let me tell you something. You know, the oldest trick in the book is you take somebody and you go and you and you call and say you see a robbery going on or you see an officer got shot, you know. And what do they do? They leave the scene of surveillance and then they come back a few minutes later. You only need that few minutes. I'm not saying that was done. I'm yeah. just telling you, trying to think through what I learned and who I am. I don't know. My guess, and this is a guess that maybe it was Butch Blassie that let him in. Butch Blassie didn't want to know. Maybe Butch Blassie let him in and left. Okay, but I feel that the only person that Sam would have been comfortable with and would have met for a reason would have been Tony. 
Now, everybody argues to this day about it. To me, that's pure Tony Cardo. That's his smarts. If you, if you, right now, if somebody says, I was there and I seen Tony do it, people would still doubt it. If the yeah. person was really there, that's what Tony wanted. Put doubt in people's mind. Very, very smart man. So, Frank, I'll just say, I'll just say about your uncle. Your uncle gave an, an amazing, uh, I think it was two, three days of testimony. Um, you gave, again, a, a, a great uh, couple days of testimony. So talk a little, I mean, you didn't see your uncles, but talk about yours. And then as we finish up, I'll give my, I don't think your dad did himself any favors from jump as great as you and your uncle were, were as bad as your dad was. Yeah. So the, I knew my dad better than anybody. So the FBI and Mitch Myers, I got to spend a lot of time with them. Mike May spent a lot of time. Uh, the lead guys on the case, I spent a lot of time. I spent hours and hours and days and days going through it. But they told me, they said, we've never had any cooperating witness work so hard and put so much input in it. I says, well, because if my dad walks out, the only option I got is to wait for him as he's walking out with a shotgun. You're not supposed to say that to us. I says, it's the truth, you know. So, you know, when I walked in that courtroom and I looked at my dad, I hadn't seen him in six years. He had aged. I was overcome with emotion. So overcome, they told me to walk up to the, to the stand. And I don't know if you noticed or remember, I stepped up on the stoop and got right in the judge's face. Mm-hmm. They were, the, the FBI lawyer, like, well, what are you doing? I says, uh, you told me to go up there. You know, I was just, so they, they were smart. They put me on for an hour that day. And then we had a three-day break to practice just to get all that stuff out. Because emotionally, I want to run over and hug my dad. That's my dad. I still love him. I hate his ways. What am I doing in public court? You know, so that was hard. It was hard. In fact, another thing I did, and I know you might remember I got uh, Judge Zagel. You know, I kept <laughs> I kept getting too close to the microphone. Yeah. You know? yeah he's like, can you, can you just step back? Now, another thing I did to calm my nerves was I asked to be able to go sit in the courtroom in the chair the night before. Okay. The day before. So the, we had to have the marshals there, you know, and all that. But, um, so I was able to sit in the courtroom and get a feel for everything and where everybody's going to be and what table my dad was going to be at. And that was just me preparing for all, all of this. Um, you know, after a week of testifying, I think it was four days, one day was only an hour or two. Um, I was, uh, sleepless nights overcome with emotion. Uh, um, the you I, came off very authentic, though, and you could tell by looking at the jury, watching the jury, because I was watching the jury the entire trial. You could see that they connected with you. They felt I don't know, empathy, sympathy. You were able to communicate that and immediately build that rapport with a jury, and that's not something that always happens. Well, if you and remember, both you and your uncle were able to do that. Well, when we started, I didn't know. So the FBI puts people in the audience. I should say the prosecutors put lawyers in the audience to see how it's going. So they get feedback, you know, critique. Well, the first day we were going over the recordings, they came back at lunchtime and they go, it's a mess. We don't understand anything. So I says, look, I got an idea. I says, play the thing like we did. And what I would do is all the stuff I wanted to answer. I, I count on my fingers. So if I had eight things and then. I go through the whole thing and say what I this is what this meant. This was that, and then John Scully would question me after that, and they said that went perfect, which was was good because you need everybody to understand 
what's going on so they can follow. And Judd Zagel, all he was waiting for was me. He, you don't know if you've seen him, but he was reading it and he's watching. If I said one thing out of line that he thought was bullshit, he would have jumped all over me and I would have lost my credibility. And he didn't. And not that I'm patting myself on the back. It was preparation and what I knew. But I did so well with, you know, what I was doing and my preparation that Mitch Myers comes up to me and says, we're going to put you on the stand and we're going to play a tape with Anthony Twan Doyle, my dad and Mike Rickey, and you're going to tell us what they talk about. But he didn't tell me as soon as they do that, the defense attorneys are going to jump up because you can't play something in federal court if somebody was. So what I did was they played it. And I said, in my conversations with my dad or anybody around me, purse meant bloody glove. This meant that. This meant that. And they did a, um, what was that when they all come up? They, they made me leave the room. They, they did a, be- a, uh, a bench conference. A bench conference, right? I'm in the, I'm in, I'm scared of height, right? That's on the 20-something floor. The room they got me in is a little room, and it's all windows. And I'm walking around trying not to get to the window. I'm more scared of the height than I am of going back into the trial. Mitch comes mm-hmm. in. He says, okay, you're going to go back in there and finish this. I go, what? So calmly. I go, what? They allowed it? The judge allowed it? He goes, yeah. And, you know, and Joey Lombardo was getting mad because they're like, hey, what kind of attorneys we got? You guys can't win one motion. You guys can't win one objection. What's going on there? Well, you know, this case was put together. Well, after a week, if I'm the stand, I get up, I look at my dad, I walk away, I go in a room and tears are flooding down my face. Prosecutor Manelli, what's wrong? Something happened. I go, no, you know how sick and sad this is. I just seen my dad for the last time in life. And it was the last time in life. Now, during the trial, prosecutor says, hey, how do we get your dad mad? You know how to get him out of character when he gets mad. I told Marcus Funk, I said, he don't know. He was the, he was the, uh, he was the BG of that crew. You had the OG prosecutors, Scully and Mars. And he had Marcus Funk, who was this younger guy. And Scully and Mars were, were kind of uh, tiny. Yeah. Marcus and- Funk looked like he was a tight end for the Bears. Yeah. I and- said, you got to do it. I says, you walk up to him, point in his face, raise your voice like you're threatening him and call him some kind of name. And he did. And he got my dad so mad that they threatened him. He threatened him. Marcus Funk Funk had the rare honor to say that through the Family Secrets conspiracy trial, he was threatened by two, not one. He was threatened by Frank the German and Frank Cal- uh, Frankie Breeze, Frank Calabrese. So he obviously got under the skin of those guys. They didn't know. Uh, He's the new guy. Yeah. Like, what, what did he say specifically? What did your father say? To, well, to- I mean, what it was told I wasn't there was that he mouthed the words, you're a dead man. Yeah, wow. he, he, he was like, smile. And then I want you to comment on this as, as we're wrapping up. You know, my big takeaway from watching your father's testimony. Joey Lombardo got up there and, and thought that his little quirky, quippy grandpa act could play on the stand for multiple days because it had worked uh, to ingratiate him with the, the courtroom and the jury over the months leading up to his testimony. He was very funny and- They were all laughing. They were, and all, they were all laughing. And, and, was the only guy that sat there, with, just sat there. Like, yeah. Yeah. Joey Lombardo. Marce- yeah, Marcelo didn't didn't break a smile or I mean Marcelo, like you said, he had a poker face on. Lombardo was, you know, playing his clown act 
and decided that he thought he could keep it going on the stand. And then very quickly, the little, you know, five second quips couldn't sustain multiple hours on the stand. And he just looked like an old man that was lying. Your dad, on the other hand, not only was he bad on the stand, but your father would say, and I was the, your father was closer. I was closest to your father out of all of um, on the defense table where I sat in the media um, section. I, I could literally almost reach out and touch your father. And um, he, he was doing himself a, a great disservice. And I, I questioned why Joe Lopez, who was, a, who was his attorney, wasn't stepping in. But every time someone got up on the stand and started to just describe your father taking part in a murder, he would be grinning ear to ear. Purposely. Um, almost like he was relishing the, uh, you know, getting to relive it. And it wasn't like one time, it was like a dozen times. And oh. I'm, I'm, I'm whispering to the other reporters, what is Lopez doing? Why isn't Lopez whispering in his ear? Stop smiling. Joe had no control over my dad. One thing my dad, see, I knew my dad better than anything. The biggest mistake my dad and Joey Lombardo had is they were very good at sit-downs, okay, which I'm sure you guys explained yeah. before. And at sit-downs, you can control the room, you can control the table, and you can lie. When you get into a federal court like that, you can't take the stand when you know that you're guilty of 99% of the stuff they're doing. So my dad would smile because he wanted every, he was laughing like, this is all bullshit. This right. Is no, all I know what his, I know that was what, like, that's how he would have explained it. But the way that it was coming off to the jury and to the gallery in the courtroom was that he was taking pleasure and them talking about him as a sociopathic murderer. The government was shocked in total shock when Joel Lombardo was going to take the stand. And they felt he did so terrible that there's no way my dad would take the stand. Yeah. So when my dad decided to take the stand, they were going to have a field day. All they wanted to do was get him mad, get him mad. And who got him mad? The judge. You can't do that. What do you mean I can't do that? I'm defending myself. So you catch little pieces, right? He starts shaking because he's getting mad. He tried to control himself because of his temper. And I, again, I wasn't in the courtroom, but I would get the feedback. Okay. And that that's... That that's what I got. So yeah. and the other thing that he did too was once he found out. So he was telling Jimmy Marcello before the tapes came out. He goes, "This is all done by my son, not my brother. It's my son. My brother would never have the brains to do this. My son's doing it, and my brother told my son everything. I never told him nothing. When the tapes came out, Jimmy was steaming because my dad's the one telling me everything." And I knew that the only way to get my dad was to get him in his own words because he would have manipulated him. You know, they didn't they didn't everybody get charged on what my uncle testified to. Everybody got charged on the stuff 100 percent that my uncle testified to from the tapes of my dad. So it was my dad's voice, my dad's own words that incriminated him. And that's what I tried to do. So yeah, Marcel, Marcelo and Lombardo had almost no physical evidence uh, tying them to anything. Joey. Lombardo had a fingerprint on a car rental paper. Um, but other than that, Jimmy Marcello was convicted based on his voice on an answering machine. Uh, but oh, yeah, to your point, it, it was your, your dad's talking on those tapes that my, made everyone realize that uncle, Lombardo and Marcello were guilty. 
there's still people out there that think, oh, this is all a lie. Okay, my uncle alone, I don't think Jimmy would have been, you know, I don't think he would have been found guilty. There wasn't enough. Okay, and so unfortunately for Jimmy, it was my dad was the one, you know, and my dad hired Lopez because he was close with Jimmy and 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 um, and uh, Mickey Marcello. So he wanted them to know everything he was doing so that he wouldn't get killed in prison. Okay. I have a love. I have a love hate relationship with the shark, Joe Lopez, <laughs> where uh, sometimes he'll he'll say uh, complimentary things on posts about stuff I write. And then sometimes he'll be like, oh, that's Bernstein fantasy land again. <laughs> yeah. and I'm just like, really, Joe? Joe's a uh, character. Joe's a character. Joe, I so go ahead. Sorry, Frank. I get along with him. Good. Uh, Bobby Rasha, a uh, dear friend of mine, that's a lawyer. Uh, he represented the uh, uh, Flores brothers against Al yeah. Chapo. Yeah. Yep. Anyways, um, they were very, very close, him and Lopez. And, you know, and so, you know, when Lopez was, I can't believe the kids did this. Well, when Lopez thought my dad had no money. And when it came out that my dad had all this money and everything, Lopez was pissed. And then my dad started giving it to Lopez and Lopez started changing his, you know, well, maybe this guy, you know, maybe they got something here, you know. So, so everybody was convicted. Uh, let's just give a quick RIP. Uh, we were talking about family secrets. Again, something that meant a lot to me, obviously meant more to, meant more to Frank, but uh, RIP to Judge Zagel, uh, a, a true uh, superstar of the federal bench, uh, uh, you know, salt of the earth, uh, just I thought was a was a, a great judge and, and he passed away recently. And then shortly after um, the trial, we found out that Mitch Mars uh, was battling cancer. And that was his really his last hurrah uh, was getting the family secrets conviction. So RIP to Mitch Mars. Your father passed away um, was about five years after 2012. So on Christmas a day, hey, uh, your, your, uncle, year. your uncle uh, passed away yeah. recently in the last year. Um, and the only guy, the only major guy that's that's still locked up doing time for this is Jimmy Marcello. Yeah. Uh, Joey Lombardo passed Nine. away a couple years ago and actually had threatened Judge Zagel um, from from prison. I think he was making the argument that he was joking uh, around with a with a gangbanger, but the gangbanger went and told um, the prosecutors that Joey was looking to kill Zagel. Um, so again, that, just given uh, you know the the uh, the post post game uh, uh, notes. Um, and then, was, was your father in danger when he was the last few years of his life? What, what, was the outfit going to take it out on him for your decision? Um, I, I never heard of anything. Okay, he was for he was locked down in a special lockdown SAMS because he put out a hit on me and my uncle that was uh, that was confirmed by the FBI through credible witnesses for one hundred fifty thousand and the threat. So he got put down. He was locked down 24 seven. And Mar Marcel, they had a uh, U.S. Marshal on the pad. I mean, they came really close to locating. I don't know about you, Frank. I know they came really close to locating your uncle and, and well, that's, maybe that's, killing that's him before trial. The thing was the first time in the witness protection um, yeah. history that they, that they compromised. It was, um, yeah, it was another police officer that was trying to get close to a decorated Marshal. Yeah. And um, because of the, the tapes in the visiting room, they were they were able to show that this marshal was passing information 
of who my uncle was going to uh, testify, what he was going to testify, and allegedly the route they were going to take to bring him from the safe house to prison. Because they flew him in on a private plane and they put him in a safe house. And uh, and this guy wound up getting a 10-year sentence. Yeah. And they so- gave him opportunities to, you know – cooperate and do the right thing. And he was stubborn. He, he was saying that he would have never followed through with anything. He was just trying to get on their good side so they can help him find other fugitives. Uh, So this was awesome. Uh, I, I, this is what, if not my favorite episode we've done, it's in my top two or three. I can't thank you enough. I I was again, the longest episode we probably ever did, but I think that uh, Frank was deserving of it. He told a story that just, uh, he just floors you and and draws you in and captures you. Uh, he's a dynamic speaker. Thank you so much, Frank, for telling your story, man. You're you're, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me, you and Jimmy. Um, you know, and please and- let everyone know where they can find where they can consume your. Content. Well, I was doing tours in Chicago and private appearances. I've been working for two years to try to do something with the Ma Museum. It's an unbelievable museum. The people that are running it, unbelievable, and I felt that I can add a lot to it. Um, so, um, I'm going to be starting there in January full time. And, uh, we have a lot of cool stuff that we're going to work with. I'm donating a lot of stuff to the museum. Um, a lot of stuff that people don't normally see like 302s. People are like, what a 302? A 302 is what the FBI writes after they have a meeting with a confidential informant, CI. And, uh, court testimony. I have stuff that's never made, made public before. You got to there's so much that hasn't made, been made public. And then it's going to we're going to do a little like a little uh, small private group sit downs, different topics, you know, uh, talk about what it was like to be in a life. How did we dress? How, how, how did we you know, how do we survive on the street? What did we think about the FBI um, uh, planning and assisting in a murder and, and how it's done? You know, it's not like in the movies where somebody just, hey, we're going to kill this guy and they jump in the car and go try to kill him. I mean, there's months and months, and, and yeah. I'm going to talk about murders that happened, that how there was surveillance on them and everything. The guys sitting in vans, being in jugs, looking through binoculars in a box in the van because he put tinted windows, everybody knows, right? So you got an empty box sitting there with somebody in it taking shifts. So tell them about your book. I mean, Frank initially uh, had Gary Ross, who was the Seabiscuit uh, um, director and writer, uh that was going to develop it it's now in uh another group's hands but i have no doubt that sooner rather than later you're going to see uh frank's book uh turned into either a feature film or um a a limited series or or regular series on a streaming on a streaming uh service this is it's the new york times SL, and i tell everybody it's a family story Organized crime was our family business, but this is more of a family story. I use the phrase, when you bring the street in the home, it corrodes the family structure. And that's what I talk about. That's what I've learned. It it, it ripped our family apart. And, you know, we're still, a lot of my family members are still dealing with the effects of it. As far as Hollywood, I've been working on this for a long time. I have great people now. I have John Hillcoat as the director. He's doing that latest series that's out with um, Taylor Sheridan, okay, with the undercover ops. He loves this story. I have uh, Taylor Matern, who wrote um, the latest one he wrote. He's a young guy. He wrote The Hustle with Adam Sandler. 
Okay, he put together a script that's unbelievable, and he put together a pilot that's unbelievable. I'm working with a guy named Brian Haas that used to run Mike DeLuca Studios. Okay, Mike DeLuca bought uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, made hundreds of millions, but he's still a force in Hollywood. I'm with Studio 8, uh, uh, Studio 8. Um, uh, Which is a subsidiary. I, I know it. Uh, I worked for them for, for a couple of years. They're a subsidiary of Sony. Uh, they're the ones that I did the White Boy Rick. Um, yeah film with so I, i'm familiar with the studio studio eight people i'm very grateful to them they gave me my well, first first entry, entry point into hollywood which i thought was an excellent movie it's an excellent story when you were doing that that's when i was still when i started negotiating with them yeah, yeah. i i didn't love honestly i didn't love the film uh i'm i'm much uh prouder of the documentary which is on netflix which uh but that's neither here nor there. I'm sure that the people that are behind your project are going to do great by Ben Affleck. At yes, one Rubinoff, point, who, was who owns ben, it, he used to run Warner Brothers. Right. And Ben Affleck at one point was on board to play your dad. I would have loved yes. to yes. have seen yes. that. And COVID hit. So, you know, things happen with COVID. Yeah. Hit. We're talking to a lot of actors. We're with CAA. I'm finally, I had my rights stolen. I was sleeping on couches, trying to get doors slammed in my face, you know, um, it seemed like every time I went somewhere and something was ready to happen, I go to CBS, ready to happen. The girl gets another job with another. Yeah, company. I know. It's a it's a slow, slow. Well, I can tell you, it's it's the backstories on being in Hollywood. Yeah. Is- and they, they, I'm going to end with this. So, in real life, you have to work and worry about the double cross. In the mob, you have to worry about the triple cross. In Hollywood, you got to worry about the quadruple and quintuple cross. Yeah. 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 So, and, and I've been fortunate enough, though, real quick, Scott, because the people I'm working with, uh, uh, they love working with me. And I felt and they've told me I contributed a lot. So I'm really enjoying it. And I want it to be something that's good, not something that's cheesy. You know, I want everybody talking like this. And, you know, <laughs> I want it to be a good story because you don't a- want a bunch of old soprano retreads. Uh, thing we all agreed on. Sopranos right. was already made. Goodfellas was already made. Okay, Casino was already made. We don't want to remake those. We right. want something. And so that's why it comes with the family. So it's really, everything is evolved around me and my father and our relationship. And it's did, it's going to really be good. Did you like Casino, by the way, Frank? Do you like that yeah, film? It's, it's, it's Hollywood. Look, I, I, what I learned by working in Hollywood, and Scott, you could probably back me up on this, is Jim, they, they take three or four characters and mold them into one. So documentary is where you can tell what really happened. Correct. Did, did you, you know? go see? Did you go see? I, we're going off another rabbit hole here. But <laughs> did you go see okay. Casino when it came out in '95 with your yeah. dad and uncle? No, I went with some friends, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like saying to myself, "I can't say it out loud. That's wrong. That didn't happen." Like <laughs> that. You know, and I'm laughing. I go, "You know." Um, but yeah, I did. But I, again, I knew it was Hollywood. And, you know, Martin Scorsese has a way of taking stuff and, 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 and you know, putting a twist on it that's very entertaining. But then you got to look at a documentary, you know. Yeah. And I don't think there was a documentary made by Rose. Uh, uh, well, we did, again, sh- shameless self-promotion. Uh, if you go to f- uh, Fox Nation, which is the Fox News Channel streaming service, I uh, uh, co-produced and starred in a the true story behind Casino. It's called Skim City. Uh, we released it uh, about five months ago. Oh, and I, I got an hour and a, hour and a half on the true story behind Casino. We also did one on we also did one on uh, Goodfellas. Uh, so go check those out on the Fox yeah, Station streaming service. Frank, this was awesome, man. We're gonna have you back on. I promise. 
Um, maybe we'll do some remote content. Uh, I'd like to do Vegas. just an outfit one time, like it was yeah. Frank, just an outfit, like, you know, just other things in the outfit that he can speak to, I think would yes. be fun. Yeah, definitely. Thank you definitely. so much. Uh, I'm you sorry guys. I went a little long, but uh, I think it's worth it. I think uh, there's a lot of meat on the bone. I don't think there's a lot of fat. A little, so we got going. <laughs> yeah. So thank you, Frank. Uh, Jimmy, uh, for Jimmy and for Benny behind the glass. Uh, OG Pod out. We'll see you next week.